really, as far as this recent Phillies hot stretch goes, first the credit goes to Tommy Pham, then the Angels, and then finally the Phillies. So they're at most third responsible for their recent success. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of There is a Lot Going On, the only podcast that has many wins since the Tommy Pham story broke as the Los Angeles Angels. I'm David Arroyo, not joined, as always, by Tom Shively. Tom Shively is on like a mini vacation kind of sort of this weekend. He was supposed to send me a voice note following game two of the NBA Finals. That didn't happen, which tells you all you need to know about his how his weekend is going. But in his place this week is the one, the only, returning guest, Brian McLaughlin. Brian, welcome back to the show. Oh, th- thanks for having me, Dave. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to have equaled the Los Angeles Angels one uh, win total recently along with you. And uh, what, a, what a stretch it's been since Tommy Pham uh, just outed Mike Trout as the worst commissioner in fantasy sports. It is just just truly sent the angel spiraling. Uh, I'll do my best to fill in for Tom this week. Is uh, He, I'm sure, is drowning his sorrows from tonight's Celtics performance. Uh, lots to get into. So honored to be back as always. All right, we, we got to let since we've already brought it up, let's talk real quick about Tommy Pham and Mike Trout and Jock Peterson. We wanted to talk about it last week, but you've levied the claim worst. He might be the worst fantasy football commissioner in sports. I, I got to know now, like, what would I have to do as a fantasy commissioner to get slapped? Because, or to have one of you guys slap each other? Right. Because what did Trout do that made? Because the rumor is it was just some like gifts and whatnot in a chat. And I guess the initial claim that started it all off from Fam was that Jock was stashing players on his IR. So, so quote unquote, the rules around the league's injured reserve were not very strict which then fam levied the blame on the commissioner, Mike Trout. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't, I feel like we have some pretty lax IR rules. At one point, our IR allowed people on there who had COVID. So, you know, there were ways to stash players in our right. league too. But, you know, it is what it, I didn't allow. Uh, I think it was Josh who has Deshaun Watson. No one knows who Josh is. I don't know. I'm just name dropping him. But he had Deshaun Watson. I did not allow Deshaun Watson to go onto the IR. That is not an IRable player. My biggest takeaway from all this is that Mike Trout does have a weakness. I I kind of just always in my brain thought, oh, he's truly Superman, can do no wrong outside of his team's one loss record. But I mean, he can, he only has so much control there, but I mean, he has a weakness for the first time ever. Mike Trout, not the world's greatest at something. It's that's the biggest surprise from the whole situation for me. And, And now he stinks too. He's like, Oh, for 23, over his life it's it's the longest hitless stretch of his career coincidence that's up for you to decide all it took was being accused of being the worst commissioner in sports so you know i mean we have some history now of him being mentally fragile he's been in the postseason once didn't do that well gets accused of being a bad commissioner now he's not playing well i don't know i'm not saying there's causation but there might be correlation or is it the other way around i forget how that works math i was bad at it yeah, I'm not sure either, but I would also just like to send a message to all the Phillies fans out there that are all of a sudden gung-ho about this recent turnaround since Girardi's firing. This is more about the Angels than the Phillies, what what has gone on in that series. We would like to make that very clear. Really, as far as this recent Phillies hot stretch goes, first the credit goes to Tommy Pham, then the Angels, and then finally the Phillies. So they're at most third responsible for their recent success. Yeah, it's, that's a good take. We got to see what they do, you know, the next month, not these last four games. Let's Phillies fans pump the brakes. Pump that includes my mother if she's listening. Pump yes. the brakes. Take a deep breath. Brian, Brian, let, let's just get into the NBA finals then. Since Tom and I recorded, you know, he, of course, picked the Warriors as an emotional hedge. I just picked the Warriors straight up in six. Game one, we'll start there, I guess, because game two was tonight. Game one, the Boston Celtics and Warriors. I mean, it was an odd game, right? Because the Warriors came out firing in game one. And the Celtics kind of kept it close, took the lead going into halftime. But then that third quarter happened, and it felt, and they said it on the broadcast, well, 
This is just that Warriors third quarter run. We've gotten to know it's the Warriors being the Warriors. This game's over. They're not coming back. And the Celtics in that fourth quarter, specifically Jalen Brown, just couldn't miss. They were hitting every single shot. The Warriors went ice cold. And they end up losing game one, 120 to 108. And then tonight, game two, the Warriors kind of the complete opposite. Start off a little slow, are able to take a lead going into halftime. And then again, third quarter happens. Jordan Poole hits a half-court shot essentially at the end of the third to put him up 20, and that was the game. As soon as that shot went down, I texted you, game over. They're not coming back from this one. Warriors take the lead, take the win in game two, 107-88, to 88, tie the series up at one apiece. Uh, Brian, you can react to either game. I just kind of, you know, instant reaction here to game two or the series so far as a whole. As far as the series overall as a whole, I also picked the Warriors. I said Warriors in seven. Um and so I was surprised at the game one result. Um, I think it was Draymond who said post game, he felt like he let Steph down and felt like if Steph is going to come out that hot, he needs to equally play as well and match that play and that energy. And so um, I think the Celtics absolutely stole game one. And I think large credit needs to go to Jalen Brown, I think, who has been not necessarily slept on in these playoffs, but but Jason Tatum has snagged all the Celtics headlines, in my opinion. And while Brown has gotten a lot of credit, he's kind of been that 1B to Tatum's 1A. And I think he proved in game one, look, I'm that dude who can go into the Warriors' house and steal a game on the road in the NBA Finals. And so I think Jalen Brown deserves a ton of credit. Maybe that Maybe it's credit that I didn't give him, but he proved something to me in game one. But then in game two, I mean, this was the Warriors that we all expected. Draymond was seemingly everywhere. He kind of set the tone again, early physical play, early technical, and then Steph caught fire and Jordan Poole just showed their depth. I mean, that third quarter and in, like you said, the third quarter shot from half court to end it, it truly ended the game after three. He kind of, even on an off night for Clay, helped carry the load with Steph. And it was it was a response the Warriors needed, I think was, I thought, Tonight went pretty much par for the course as to what I kind of expected as far as the series was going to go. It was a two-point game, like I mentioned, going into half. The Warriors put up a 35-14 to third quarter. And like we mentioned, 21-point lead going into the fourth. That is par for the course with what the Warriors have done the last few years. They end up losing the fourth quarter, but it just doesn't matter at that point when you put the barrage on that you do in the third quarter. I'll go get back to game one, two for a second. I was impressed by the fact that Jason Tatum, to me, has always been this player who, if he's not getting his shot to fall, he's not that valuable to you. Just because of the, not not because he's a bad player, it's just because of the way he plays the game. And in that first game, both defensively what he brought and then his playmaking ability in that first game, he had 13 assists with only two turnovers to show for it. And for him to do that, which is an element of his game that he really didn't have prior to this season, has been much better since, you know, once the team started to win halfway through the year. I was super impressed by his showing in game one. And I thought, wow, they stole a game where Jason Tatum didn't really play that well, didn't shoot well. That could be the series. That could win them this series because they won a game they weren't supposed to win. And then game two is basically the polar opposite. They get the great game from Jason Tatum and not one of his teammates shows up. I mean, when. You know, Derek White off the bench, four of 13. Jalen Brown started off hot, finished five of 17. That You're just not ever going to win that game, especially when the Warriors are shooting the way they are, specifically Steph Curry. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. I, I've always thought it's a little ridiculous, and I said it last week, that we are judging how good Steph Curry is off of whether or not he gets a finals MVP. And it's fair to say he's had bad finals performances, but he hasn't really been bad in the NBA Finals since 2016, since that one they lost. He was good every year Durant was there, and he was excellent against the Raptors, just his entire team was injured, so he wasn't going to win that series. Yeah, I, I just... I think Curry looks like a guy who's on a mission to prove something, which is weird because I don't feel like he really has anything to prove. He's kind of had the, the steady head so far in this series. He's just kind of shown up, gone about his business, and reminded everybody... Look, there's a lot of buzz around these Celtics, and everybody, Draymond draws so many headlines because he's Draymond Green. Steph has kind of quietly reminded everybody, I'm Steph Curry, I'm the biggest baller here. Like, he's kind of, 
even though they lost game one, it was still a first quarter reminder. Steph Curry's a bad dude. And even though anybody who's watched the NBA this year has seen that, that was my kind of early on takeaway before Jalen Brown, again, in my opinion, sold that game one show. But Steph is... I, I, I don't think he's outwardly out to prove anything. He's not walking around like he's got a chip on his shoulder, but he sure is playing like it. And that's a scary thought, even though Boston's going back home. Um, it's scary for Boston, I think, when you see the, the intensity Steph is playing with and the ease at which he's doing it. It has not been that he's been working hard in these first two games either. It's been taking what Boston's been giving him, and they've been giving him a little too much. Well, it's something, too, I noticed a, a switch from the Warriors that I think they pointed out on the broadcast uh, about midway through the third quarter that I kind of noticed a little bit earlier. And it was weird to see the Warriors play in this way, where the entire time we've known the Warriors, what they like to do is run Steph, run Clay, run whoever, Jordan Poole, off of like five off-ball screens, good ball movement around the perimeter. It's get them open but with movement, tire out the other team. That didn't really work in game one. I mean, they put up whatever it was, 108, but it, it just, the Celtics seemed to kind of, when they stifled them in the second and fourth quarters, they seemed to kind of get used to it and figure it out a little bit. Where in this game, they were much more comfortable just saying, let's throw Steph, Clay, uh, Jordan Poole into some pick and roll action. And Steph then has the option to either pull up from three or drive the ball in and find a teammate. And every single time they did that action, just simple pick and roll, somebody ended up with an easy shot. It's the reason Kevon Looney was six of six for 12 points. They were just, I remember the one play, three Celtics players collapsed on Curry the moment he hit the paint and he just dumped it off for an easy dunk for Looney. And for the Warriors to simplify their offense that much and still be so effective, I think is going to be a problem for the Celtics. And I also felt going into the series, the depth of these two teams would play a factor. And I, I think you saw it both games. Jordan Poole had a bad game one. Derek White had a good game one. Uh, and then you flip it. Derek White had a bad game two. Jordan Poole wasn't great in game two, but he was much better than he was in game one. And it, it seems like that was the difference where any team that is trotting out Peyton Pritchard for 30 minutes, I just don't trust that team. I don't trust giving 30 minutes to Peyton Pritchard in an NBA Finals game. I need to defend my boy Peyton Pritchard really quickly. I understand your point, Dave. I just need to, to firmly plant my flag in the Peyton Pritchard camp. Peyton Pritchard won me a lot of money when he was at Oregon. I love that kid. Uh, I, I was riding hard with his Oregon Ducks, so I just need to make myself clear. I, I'm on Peyton Pritchard Island. But I see your point. It is going to be problematic for the Celtics if he is being asked to play that role in this series. For me, it's it's the, the, the depth conversation to me revolves a lot around the secondary stars, the, the likes of Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, Al Horford and Marcus Smart, not necessarily Steph Draymond and Clay and Tatum and Jalen Brown, because those are the, the kind of headliners. To me, it's those secondary guys because they all can steal games. Al Horford was so important in that game one win for Boston. Tonight, it was Jordan Poole who stepped up as that secondary star for, for Golden State. Those are the guys I kind of like to watch as far as who else is stepping up beyond the big guys? And because I think Steph is going to continue to put up 30 a night, you're probably going to get 30 a night from either Jalen Brown or Tatum for the Celtics. So will it be an Andrew Wiggins stepping up to have a big night coming up? Because I think he's a real X factor going to Boston. Um, I think he can be a player on the road that can have a real impact for Golden State. So it's a really interesting question for me as the schedule now flips back to Boston with the Celtics having taken that game on the road, how does this series change? Because it is all about that pick and roll adjustment for the Warriors offensively. We've seen the Celtics adjust though brilliantly all, all since January, all of 2022. So I'm, I'm not expecting that the Warriors are just going to run pick and rolls the rest of the series. And there's no going to be no defensive adjustment. You know, Marcus Smart is going to do his best to shut down Curry at some point. It's just the question of who plays well next and will it be Horford responding or will it be somebody like a, a Wiggins or a Jordan Poole showing that he can do it on the road? And frankly, I'm not sure if I trust Jordan Poole in Boston until he does it. 
I'm probably with you. I probably don't trust Jordan Poole on the road until I see him do it. To go back, though, for a second, you mentioned adjustments, and that's something I got to give both of these coaches credit for, especially as somebody who watches a team who is horrible at in-game adjustments. <laughs> both of these teams are very good in-game adjusters, and it was really, again, like a halftime adjustment for the Warriors where they really just simplified that offense yeah. and made it so, you know, that that was just all they were doing. And the Celtics tried to adjust the other way, but they were, the Warriors were hunting matchups and they were getting the matchup they wanted, which is kind of what I thought going into the series would be the key was if the Warriors were hunting that Al Horford, Grant Williams, Robert Williams, you know, whoever's out there, just hunt that matchup. And I think they would have been in good shape. They didn't really do it game one, did it a lot more game two, and we'll see how both teams adjust going into game three. But somebody else you mentioned, because you mentioned, you know, kind of steady Eddie, and he has not been that so far in the series. What is wrong with Clay Thompson? Four of 19 today, including one of eight from three. He had 11 points, but he just doesn't look himself at all. And it's not even that he he's not getting open looks because he's getting open looks. It's the open looks aren't falling, which is, you know, it happens. Shooters go through cold streaks. But he's also taking a lot of bad jump shots. Like one one at one point tonight in transition, he took a shot with like 20 seconds on the clock from the mid-range. He took one really bad turnaround three that I just the moment it went up, I was like, I hate that shot. And I've never seen him take like such have have such bad decision making when he's shooting the basketball. It's just so uncharacteristic of Clay Thompson. Part of that I felt like in the fourth quarter, I noticed some of those bad shots too. It was because I felt like he was just trying to shoot himself out of it. It was kind of like, all right, I, I know this game's out of hand. Let me just get him up. Um, let's. Uh, that's all it felt like to me. And I think Van Gundy said that perfectly on air. Mark Jackson was not worried about Clay during um, this game and throughout the series so far, which I think that's kind of par for the course with Mark Jackson. He's always going to back up Clay. That's his boy. I I don't know how I feel about the Clay situation because. Clay in games one, two, three, four, five, and seven, I don't love. He's going to score 35 in game six. It's, you know that's going to happen. The question is, can the Warriors win if he only has one good game? Does he need to play well in two or three for them to win? I'm not sure about that yet. We're, we're going to find out because I, I don't see Clay playing well for the next five games if it does go seven I think they get a good Clay Thompson maybe once or twice and those might be must wins for the Warriors well so here's the I, I decided as you were saying that to look at his game log from previous series obviously game five against the Mavericks he went off he had 32 points that was basically his game six he was like we only gotta get to game six we'll just <laughs> we'll do it tonight the rest of the series, only one game did he shoot below 50%, and that was game three. So, And he still had 19 in that game. So there was only one game the entire series against the Mavericks where he didn't play well. Against the Grizzlies, he had three games where he didn't play well, so he was about 50-50 par for the course in that series. So, it, And then in the first round, he played great basically every game except the closeout game. So it's been really odd, like in this series, do the Celtics just have an answer for him that the other teams didn't? Is it something they're doing or is it just he is is pressing? I think he's pressing a little bit. But he has gotten some decent looks. Like there have been some open jumpers that he's just missed. Well, yeah, he had had the one that he ran off a screen tonight where literally wide open – and he just clanked it off the front of the rim. So, I, again, maybe it's his legs, it, like just not being used to playing this far in the season for the first time in a long time. But uh, it's a concern if you're the Warriors. And you, when you go to Boston, you need him to show up. Because, like you mentioned, like on the road in a playoff series, that's where you need your stars to show up. That's... That's really if, like, to go back to previous series, that's where the Sixers fell apart against the Heat. And Bead and Harden didn't show up when they went down to Miami. If you look at the, uh, what was the, the reason the Heat were able to keep that series so so close, Jimmy Butler showed up every road game. Jason Tatum against the Bucks showed up on the road in Milwaukee. And so you need your stars to show up on the road. And if Klay Thompson doesn't show up in Boston, I'm going to be honest, could be 3-1 going back to Golden State. 
I would. I, I'll say right now. I I do think Golden State wins a game in Boston. Um, I think we're going back to Golden State tied. Um, I'm not sure if that's because of Clay Thompson or not. I also, as you were kind of explaining all that about they do need him in Boston. Part of me thinks that that hostile environment, the Boston crowd could. Uh, to put it bluntly, just slap him in the face a little bit, like just get him revved up. I, I think Clay might respond well because he has played in big time moments and games before, and he's played in hostile environments. And so because he's got those familiar experiences, I think maybe it could get Clay a little bit revved up. I would not be surprised to see him hit an early shot and then really get it going, feeding into the crowd. We've seen since Clay got hurt and then return, I think a more emotional Clay. He has been more um, very demonstrative. He's really gotten into it with the crowd at home when he's gotten going. He's been talking very vocally to opposing teams' benches. Um, I just have seen a, a Clay that really doesn't give a bleep anymore in moments since he's returned from injury. He is kind of just letting it all out there. And maybe that's part of why he's struggling because it, it, it is a different mindset than in years past when he's been that consistent metronome for the Warriors. But he's, he seems a little bit more volatile right now. But that could mean he could just... It's a spark in Boston. You never know how people are going to respond to those Celtics fans because they are so hostile different mindsets, different players, everybody reacts differently. Maybe it gets Clay going. Well, and you mentioned too, he's used to that, right? Like 20, what was that? 2016 game six on the brink of elimination against the Thunder. That's where he got the nickname game six Clay. And he just went absolutely berserk in that game six. And ever since that's just been his MO on the road, Game sixes, and again, it's almost always on the road because the Warriors have been so consistently a one seed. And so, you know, if you're the Warriors, that's what you're hoping for in game three or four. You only need it in one game. And I'm kind of with you. I think the Warriors win one of those two games and goes back to Golden State tied at two apiece. But if they don't go back tied at two apiece... It, I mean, series over. You can't go down 3-0 or 3-1. So Warriors need to steal a game in Boston or it's dire. It's a dire situation. All right, Brian, let's transition then from the NBA Finals to another piece of NBA news. That, of course, is the Utah Jazz. Uh, Quinn Snyder today announced that he was going to be leaving the Utah Jazz. Uh, actually had two years left on his contract, but decided that he was just going to leave that on the table in order to uh, leave basketball, I guess. It wasn't very clear whether or not he's done with basketball or he's going to come back. It came out shortly after the Jazz are targeting Terry Stotts for their head coaching position. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, though, was described as, quote, unsettled, unnerved, and wondering what it means for the franchise's future with Quinn Snyder now out. Brian, there's the quote. I'd like your reaction to Donovan Mitchell's uh, unsettled, unnerved, and pondering of the future. Can't be a good feeling for the Jazz front office to hear Donovan Mitchell say that. I mean, it's the the question about the Jazz, right? They're kind of at a at an unnerving spot as a franchise. I'd be unnerved. I get where he's coming from. You don't know what the deal is with your coach. You keep losing in the playoffs despite great regular season success. Um, I think the Jazz and they're kind of having a, an identity crisis. It's it's a it's a midlife crisis right now for the Jazz. They're swapping out their coach. They're they're buying a new sports car. Who knows what the front office is thinking as far as player personnel might be concerned. Um, it's definitely a major, major question for them moving forward as far as Donovan Mitchell's happiness is, is my initial reaction there because while I'm not sure he's the best player on an NBA championship team, I do think he is a very good player on a potential NBA championship team. And he's a guy you just want to have around. He's a young superstar. You want to keep him for the future. And so as we know, a big part of managing in the NBA today is keeping your superstars happy, and they aren't doing that so well, which is not a good thing moving forward. Yeah, I'm not a... I've hashed this out on the podcast plenty of times. I'm not a big Donovan Mitchell guy for a, n a number of reasons. I just... It's mostly to do with 
on-court attitude and what I want from my star player. And he seems to lack that specifically on the, on the defensive end, where if he doesn't care about defense, why should anybody else? And, you know, some of that can be blamed on the fact with like how they built this team. But I think if you're the Jazz front office, right, the rumors, I mean, for months now, have been that Donovan Mitchell is going to try and force his way to the Knicks, that Donovan Mitchell wants to be a New York Knick. And this is just reason enough for him to be like, why should I still be here? Why would I want to stay here when you just got rid of a coach I like? Got rid of a coach that for the last few years has gotten us, you know, one seeds and, you know, been a really great basketball coach. Because I think for Donovan Mitchell, right, the issue is not Quinn Snyder. I think, and... Why, again, why Snyder Snyder resigned, I don't know. The Jazz actually said that they, he, he said that the Jazz, quote, need a new voice. So I, I don't know what that actually means. And that's like very cryptic. But I think him and everyone, everyone might agree that the issue largely in Utah has been Rudy Gobert. And it's not because Rudy Gobert isn't a good basketball player, because I think in another situation he could be better, but he's basically, he can basically be played off the court in playoff series because they pull him out to the perimeter and there's no other player on the Jazz who is capable of playing defense at the way Rudy Gobert does. And so he's not really getting cooked on the perimeter the way like we like to pretend he does, but you pull him away from the rim and now literally you're just giving up open layups because he's not he doesn't have the foot speed now to get back to the rim in time. And the Jazz just they're a poorly constructed team right now. And so I understand where Mitchell's coming from. But where is he going to get traded to that's a better situation? Specifically the Knicks. Like are the Knicks really a better situation? The last time this happened was Carmelo Anthony, and the Knicks had to trade all promising young pieces to the Nuggets. The Nuggets were immediately better for it, and the Knicks didn't have any role players to put around Carmelo Anthony when he could have just waited for the offseason and signed there anyway. Donovan Mitchell is currently in the same position. I believe his contract is up next offseason. And so if he forces his way out this year, you're just blowing up a team for no reason just because you want to play in New York. And that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Just play your contract out and sign there in the offseason. It's all because Donovan Mitchell, he's kind of forgotten what the bright lights feel like. I think he's he's been stuck in Utah. He wants the big city. It's kind of like it's he's been dating this girl for a while. He's kind of over it. He wants he wants the first thing he looks at, and the bright shiny thing right now are the but New ho- York. Hold Knicks. on, hold on, hold on. But but like that's like saying he was dating a Kardashian, and now you know he want or he used to date a Kardashian, and he wants to date another celebrity. You know he doesn't he doesn't like he's always been with the Jazz. He went to Louisville. What bright lights has he ever played under? Which, and the wild part is this quote about being unnerved and all that. Like, if he said that in the New York media, could you imagine the reaction? Like, he says some things and the general drama surrounding Donovan Mitchell would be explosive in the Mecca. It would be a wild ride for him in the garden. I think he'd really get eaten alive by that New York press corps based on every time I've heard Donovan Mitchell talk. I just, I, I don't see that being a... A perfect fit but that's how it always is with the guys who want to play in new york they, they always want to be there and then when they get there they hate it it's just how it goes uh so correction on my part uh donovan mitchell signed a five-year contract extension actually in 2020 so i did not realize that when we were talking about this i thought his contract was due up soon uh and apparently quinn snyder was a big reason he signed that contract mm. and he said he was and according to this story from adrian rojanowski he said that Mitchell was left, quote, surprised and disappointed, a source told ESPN. So, again, though, I don't see his better options. And I don't see, like, if you're if you're the, the Jazz, right, and you're in blow-it-up mode this summer, which could be where you're at, I think that's a fine place to be because, let's be honest, they're not beating the Warriors. They're not beating the Grizzlies anytime soon. They're probably not beating the Suns, even if the Suns, you know, trade Chris Paul, 
if I'm being honest, they can't beat the Nuggets. So I don't know what path there is to winning the West. So yeah, like it's okay to blow it up, but they're going to want multiple picks, probably multiple players, both for Gobert and for Donovan Mitchell if they are going to blow it up this summer. And I just don't see a team giving them that for either of them. If if it's Donovan Mitchell, it's it's a lot of what have you done for me lately? He was really great in the bubble playoffs, and he's had two straight disappointing playoff performances. Rudy Gobert, it's we know the book of Rudy Gobert at this point. Great in the regular season. There's potential for him to be played off the off the floor in the postseason. So I think if Gobert is available, multiple teams are going to want him. I think the Mavericks will be at the top of the list. I think the Charlotte Hornets will be at the top of the list for teams that really want Rudy Gobert. But, you know, I why would you give up multiple first-round picks and help the Utah Jazz? I just don't think it's the smartest situation. Another team that may be interested if he becomes available, or I guess I would have said this before they kind of had the emergence of Robert Williams, but before this season the Boston Celtics would have been at the top of the list of the Rudy Gobert sweepstakes. And now I think they're sitting there like, we made it to the finals without him. We're very happy with what we have over here. And I think a lot of teams are going to say that. And it's I think the Jazz are going to end up having to sell low on both of these players. I think they can afford less to sell low on Donovan Mitchell, but they might end up having to, especially if he wants out as badly as it may seem he does. I don't have a ton to add on top of that. I do think they'd be able to definitely dangle Donovan Mitchell better than they would Gobert. I think there are more suitors out there for for Donovan Mitchell and what he brings to the table than Gobert, certainly. My only other reaction to this whole story, I mean, one of my favorite parts about the NBA is off-season drama. And so really, while while our, our season is winding down here with the NBA Finals, like, this was just... It was really heartwarming to see a great story. Like we're starting to get the tea spilled a little bit. It, it's it's off season pettiness time in the NBA, and I, I do love the NBA Finals. I've enjoyed watching it, but I'm also kind of ready for those off season storylines to bubble to the surface because it, I just love that. Like it's Woj notification season. We're we're reading all sorts of articles we can find about these players and and their personal lives a little bit, but I'm here for the NBA drama and uh, I'm ready for the off season in that sense. See, as somebody who is a fan of a star player, I find it unnerving sometime to have Joel Embiid tweet about how much he misses Jimmy Butler and how he's like, you know, man, Miami really needs another star. And I know he's just trolling, but we're going to get to a point very soon if the Sixers don't start winning that he actually does want to be traded. And you're not going to tell me Miami's not going to try and pair him and Jimmy Butler again because they absolutely will try to do it. And if he goes, if he ends up in Miami in the next few years, I will be distraught for how much I hate that basketball team, how much I hate that organization. But I'll still just hate the Sixers even more because of what they have squandered these last. They have, I mean, I can't believe I'm somehow talking about the Sixers. They have squandered two years in a row. MVP performances out of Joel Embiid with Ben Simmons and then a seemingly potentially washed James Harden, which I'm very concerned about. But that's that's conversation for uh, an offseason episode. You're not actually surprised you're talking about the Sixers. You knew you no. were going to work the Sixers into the always. conversation some way or another. Yeah, I mean, come on. They're, they're always at the top of the mind. There's a reason. I think you can't see it, but people who are watching uh, on YouTube, there is a Sixers flag like right over here. Again, I can't see where I'm pointing. I just know it's over here somewhere. So, yeah, I just it's it's concerning. But I, I think this is the reality of having a star player on your team, right? If you're not performing and again, this is to go back to Donovan Mitchell. If you're not performing up to his liking, you you're bound to have this happen where they want out. They want a new situation. They want to try and make it their own way. The one thing I'll say about Donovan Mitchell, I don't think you can say about some of the other stars who could want out in the next few years. It's kind of like look in the mirror a little bit because again, two years in a row, he's been bad. I, I can't say you was bad in the 2020 bubble because him and Jamal Murray were just giving us game after game of excellent basketball. But Donovan Mitchell for two years in a row has not been good in the playoffs. And so I think the irony of him wanting out, again, it's not confirmed he wants out yet, but him potentially wanting out because of the firing of a coach, that's just an excuse. He 
He probably just doesn't like Utah. And listen, I can't blame him. There's not much in Utah outside of the Mormons. And so I don't blame him at all for this. But let's not pretend it was because of Quinn Snyder, because it wasn't. Like I said, he likes he wants the bright lights. Even though he's never really seen the bright lights, he, he likes the allure of it. I am looking up where Donovan Mitchell is from now because I... I think he need, is from New York. He is from Elmsford, New York. So yeah, he's seen the bright lights during his life, thankfully, because we know there aren't many bright lights in Utah either. A lot of stars, but not a, not a lot of lights. No, I, I don't know. I just think Donovan Mitchell in New York, it, it, it's at the same time makes a ton of sense, but on the other hand, it makes absolutely no sense if... Uh, if I'm at least like trying to weave those two thoughts together in my, in my brain, that's where it kind of sits like, Oh yeah, I could see him. I could see him in blue and orange and playing maybe next to Julius Randall a little bit. And I can hear the angry Knicks fans already yelling at something he said post game. And that then brings me to the point of, it doesn't really make much sense to me, him going to New York. Uh, no player should want to go to New York unless you just like your career going up in flames. That is really should be if it's not the yankees you shouldn't want to go play in new york i mean the mets yeah eh, they might... the yankees and eh, they're, they're old news this is a rangers town now rangers for sure but listen the yankees at least have a history of winning the knicks have won nothing ever yeah <laughs> but it's it's the it's the allure of the mecca i mean that that is the power of madison square garden there, there is one player in the last 20 years who could have saved the Knicks, and his name is LeBron James, okay? He had an opportunity to go there, and he said, I'm good. I'd rather go somewhere else. The Knicks are such a dumpster fire, he went back to Cleveland. That's how much of a dumpster <laughs> fire the Knicks are. So, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'll say on that. Brian, let's move on. You wanted to talk about this game, and you have, I mean, just a bonkers take, I think, that you gave me before the podcast. Uh, Wales defeated Ukraine in the UEFA playoff finals. So Wales will play the United States in November in the first game. Uh, each team will play in the World Cup. Uh, their goal came in the 34th minute off an own goal from Ukraine. So hell of a way to go out for a team embroiled in um, geopolitical controversy. I don't know if controversy is the right word, but a very hostile geopolitical climate right now in Ukraine with the war going on in Russia. And you told me that you were rooting for Wales, which I think you were the only person in the world rooting for Wales. And I need you to explain yourself. Let me first start by saying this is not at all an anti-Ukraine take in, in any sense. Um, I'll begin with, if you have not yet read the story from Wright Thompson on ESPN.com, um, regarding the Ukraine men's national team um, kind of trip towards this World Cup qualifying experience. Uh, go read that piece from Wright Thompson. He is actually in Ukraine at the moment, traveling with the, the Ukrainian national team and spent um, during their initial qualifying rounds the win over Scotland. He was watching the game in Kiev in an apartment of um, these Ukrainians. And he said earlier today on SportsCenter, Wright Thompson, an outstanding writer, he said earlier today on SportsCenter, um, the scene of these people standing in this apartment singing the Ukrainian national anthem while sirens are going off in the distance of um, essentially warning them of incoming missiles being launched from Russia. He said it was maybe the most emotional thing he's ever experienced. Um, his story is incredible. It details this entire situation regarding the Ukrainian national team very eloquently and just a phenomenal read, which then brings us to today. Wales, Ukraine, um, the winner goes to the World Cup. Wales has not made the World Cup in many, many years. This game is taking place in Wales. Ukraine, everybody understands that story, where what this team has gone through. Um, similarly, not a, a country that has historic success on the world soccer level. The winner of this match opens the World Cup against the United States men's national team. I did not want the United States to have to play Ukraine in that first round. 
And this is solely because I, I was would not be a good matchup for the United States. The entire world would be rooting for Ukraine. And I did not want to have to root against Ukraine at that level. So I chose to root against them now. And I chose to root for Wales because I do genuinely like this Wales team. I have no hate for Gareth Bale. And in the end, Gareth Bale made the play of the day. On a day where Ukraine's side probably deserved to win and probably deserved to move on. Gareth Bale on a free kick, it, it went down as an own goal off of Ukraine's captain's head, but it was created by Bale on a free kick. He took a shot, took a bad deflection, beats the Ukrainian keeper. Wales makes the World Cup. And, and I have to say, good for Gareth Bale. He is likely going to be retiring from world soccer after this World Cup. If Wales had lost today, we would likely have never seen Gareth Bale play professional soccer again. And so I was happy to see him win. Heart goes out to the Ukrainian national team. Even as I was rooting for Wales late in the game, part of me was rooting for a Ukrainian goal to tie it up just to see what would happen. It was the sporting event of the day for me. I tweeted it earlier. I know the NBA finals were going on, big NHL game. There were so many events going on today. This was the sporting event of the day that I knew I just had to take in, and I thought it lived up to the hype. It was it was just a fantastic match. I think it's just it's so tough, right, for Ukraine to kind of be in that situation where you're basically carrying literally the weight of a nation on your shoulders, and everyone knew the implications. You know, win or go home for this one, and. I mean, not to not to take it there, but home right now isn't the best place. So I'm sure for these Ukrainian players, yeah, they were trying their damnedest to make this World Cup have an opportunity to, you know, maybe get out of the group stage, spark some hope in a country that probably desperately needs it right now. Yeah. And it's just unfortunate. The point you make about Gareth Bale, I think, is is a poignant one, especially because I feel like he's caught a lot of undeserved heat, I feel, from Real Madrid and their fans. And, you know, accusations of quitting on the team and, you know, just not caring about the sport anymore, having checked out months ago. I mean, he, he wasn't playing. He wasn't good the last time we even saw him play. I, I just thought a lot of those accusations were unfair. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with them. I, I'm kind of with you. I don't expect him to play again. He strikes me as a guy who's kind of if he does play again, it's going to be for a large sum of money, probably in like you, the United States or something like that, where he'll actually get the draw that you'd hope for. But yeah, I just, it, if his career is over, since he made that move to Real Madrid, it was a masterful move. I mean, won multiple Champions League finals, had the game-winning goal in the 2018 final, just a hell of a career if this is it. And we will get one more World Cup run out of them, potentially. But, I I mean, this Welsh team should have no expectations of winning anything. In the, I mean, maybe win a game against, who is it, Iran? Is that the other team in that group? Iran would be in the group. They they would have, I, I because they have Gareth Bale, they'll have a shot against both the United States men's national team and England, um, which is hilarious that Wales is in the same group as England in this World Cup on, on a Side note, that is a whole other layer to this group. Um, yeah, the Gareth Bale stuff is is fascinating because he's been, quite frankly, bad for Real Madrid, and he has been world-class for Wales. It's a true transformation head-scratcher because it is not the same Gareth Bale for Real versus Wales. Um, it, it's it, it was all very... The emotions were hitting everybody. It was an emotional match. It was an emotionally charged game. Um, my my one big thought as far as Ukraine that I kind of want to wrap up my feelings with it, one of their players before the game said, we're, we're hoping to be able to represent our country in November. We're hoping to be still representing our country then. We're not sure if our country is still going to exist in November. And that was... A moment where it was just like, wow, that that is the weight that those players were carrying. You could see it on their faces after they beat Scotland, the, the joy that they had. You could see it on their faces today in defeat. Just an emotionally um, 
an emotionally draining day for them and an emotionally charged stretch. And you tip your cap to them for performing as well as they did. And for even just the two qualifying games, giving their, their country and their people something to cheer for. It was really special stuff. And um, again, I urge you to go read the article on ESPN.com from Wright Thompson. He describes it all much better than I've done right here. I am. I actually looked. Uh, I don't know if this is the story you're referencing, but at 9:21 today, he wrote a story called Four Good Days." Ukraine's World Cup quest is over, but the fight back home continues. I will link that story in the show notes. Again, that may not be the story you're referencing, but it appears to be quite a good story. I believe that would be a new one after their game today that he would have posted. The one I'm referencing, I believe he posted um, the morning after their match with Scotland. So just go check out Wright Thompson's coverage. Um, if you link that article, Dave, I'm sure that'll be a fantastic read as well. Uh, one more thing that I have to mention, I'd be doing the podcast a disservice if I didn't. Uh, with Wales being the group that qualified for the World Cup, that makes it the all-England imperialism group over on that side as England has invaded literally every country that they will be playing in the World Cup. So a lot of opportunities for revenge on a geopolitical scale for Iran, the United States, and Wales. It's It's got to be a team-up, guys. We've got to come together, everybody taking down England. Uh, Harry Kane, I'm sorry. Uh, many players on that team I enjoy, but... Yeah, we're, it is going to be anti-England vibes for me for the next six months. We are absolutely out on British everything. Yeah, but the, the I will say the real unfortunate part about what I just said is uh, I think we could all team together and be like, yeah, boo, England, except, you know, we're rooting for the United States, which I think Iran might have some things to say about us uh, and the imperialism argument. It's quite the group. It's it's really a wild group of four nations. I mean, the World Cup. You just can't beat it. Like, it's peak drama. <laughs> this is why, like, the Olympics and the World Cup are really funny to me. Because they are, like, at, at their core, right? It's just sports. It's just countries playing each other in sports. But they have these implications globally of, like, puff your chest out, we're better than you, that only ever happens when there's a war it's war and it's world cup and olympics that is it yeah yeah it's hard to argue i mean and as an american who missed the last world cup i'm ready to to be out there beating my chest for the usa that i'm very prepared for that and uh ready to go to war for uh for the u.s men's <laughs> national team you may say I, i'm i'm prepared ready to go to war for the soccer team I am most certainly not ready to go for war for this country. You can throw me in prison first. You heard that. That is correct. That that is my stance as well. Uh, One more thing why I'm thinking about it. Uh, Because Tom and I talked about this on our, when they announced the groups. Is your expectation the same as ours? Like, got to get out of the group. Got to at least win one or two games if you have any hopes of winning anything in 2026. Um, depends on your, I guess, if you frame it around the 2026 reference point. They're not winning um, anything I don't this think World it's Cup. An, what's that? Sorry? Uh, they're not winning anything this World Cup. Like, my expectations for them are not to win or even get to, like, a semifinal of this World Cup. But I think you need to build some momentum and chemistry heading into 2026. And I think the, the key to that is this is a relatively weaker group. U- U.S. men's national team should clearly be the second best team in this group behind England. Um, on, on This is all on paper, but they should clearly be the second best team in this group. They're in relatively good form. Had a draw against Uruguay tonight in a, in a match that featured over 20 substitutions, which is just a different conversation. But um, they, they were solid and coming off a win against the World Cup team in Morocco. So this is a group that's playing really well. If you want me to get into it, I think Christian Pulisic should probably be coming off the bench. Um, They are ultra, ultra talented. They have so many good wingers. And I think Pulisic can be a super sub off the bench. And um, there are lots of other positions still to be sorted out. The number nine striker spot, who knows? It's a major point of concern that you don't know who your starting goalie is yet either. Um, So 
I have my concerns, but I'm also very optimistic because the likes of Timothy Weah, Brendan Aronson, Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, Weston McKinney, so many names that just bring positive thoughts to my brain about this team that I'm, I'm unbelievably excited for the World Cup. We missed last time. So in that sense, I'm going in with very low expectations. But 2026, man, the expectations for me are going to be much higher and uh, if they were to make it out of this group and maybe win a round in the knockout rounds, then, then we're talking 2026, the expectations are going to get to a dangerous level, which part of me wants to really try like internally for myself, Dave, I need to keep the focus on 2022 or like I'm going to lose my mind thinking about the future because that's the, the story of United States soccer. We're always like, oh, it's the future, the future, the future. At some point, it needs to be the present, and this group needs to deliver. I would love for it to be this year. Let's let's make it 2022. They deliver a surprising run to maybe the, the round of eight or who knows, maybe even farther. Uh, based on current world rankings, the United States is three spots better than Wales. They are 15th. Uh, Wales is 18th. Uh, best in the group, mm. of course, England at five. Iran the worst at 21. Uh, a couple other real quick World Cup thoughts while we're talking about it. We're going to do a full World Cup preview come November. Brian may be back for that. We'll see. I don't know who's going to be on. I'd love to be. be. Uh, I'll give you a couple guarantees before I even get there. One, guarantee Brazil doesn't win it. Brazil is always the favorite going into the World Cup, and I guarantee they won't win it. It's just um, you got to trust me on this one. I have nothing to back that up. I'm just positive on it. And I the love other, the take. I can also guarantee you England will not win it. Again, oh, with you, there is a lot of history to suggest they won't win it, and I do not trust Harry Kane in a big stage. So, and he's he's their best goal scorer. Let's just be honest. No, that's the thing. He's not, and they keep starting him up top. He's not their best goal scorer. True. It's, it's it, this is again. I, I'm gonna come across as anti-Christian Pulisic here, but he and Harry Kane are not their team's best goal scorers, but their countries treat them as if they are God. And I'm a Chelsea fan. I, I watch Pulisic a lot. I, I think he should be coming off the bench. Same with Harry Kane. There are more talented, younger, more positive options that more consistently put the ball on the back of the net for both England and the United States. Um, it, it's just a real tragedy that, some of those players aren't getting the chances that I think they deserve, but I'm not the manager for those clubs. And I'm rather glad that I'm not because I would be probably having the most beloved American and coming off the bench to start the world cup. And my head might get chopped off for that. Hey, we're not living in whatever century France. All right. I, I think you head head chopping. You might be all right on that front. Uh, okay. Maybe not beheaded, but I, I'm definitely going to have, pitchforks and an angry mob coming after me the more i talk about Pulisic coming off the bench because u.s u.s soccer fans are crazy dave I, I i've been getting more and more vocal with this Pulisic take and i've had some people coming after me it's not a fun spot to be listen we're gonna i'm jerome's gonna hear this so he'll know that i want this we're definitely gonna clip this off and put it on instagram and we'll make sure you're mm -hmm. tagged in it so you can uh you can get the hate on there listen yeah, I'm, I'm ready for it I still, I think about it frequently because I, I, again, I just think it's funny. I got the funniest comment we've ever gotten on an Instagram was somebody who said I had a big forehead and that's just funny to me. I, I do have a big forehead. I can't even deny that. So it's good observation by that guy. Cheers to them. Nailed it. Uh, funniest team on the world stage, by the way, is Italy. Six ranked team, not in the World Cup. Jorginho really choked it really choked it for Italy my it's it's been a tough stretch for Chelsea players internationally well Brian that should bring us to our final segment today that is of course the sound of the week I have one sound this week you of course don't have any sound I didn't expect you to bring any so that's okay you know you'll, you'll know for next time you know if you hear anything that intrigues you you'll bring it but it was not a requirement we don't require guests to do all this extra leg work that I do for the sound of the week Brian the sound of the week this week is a very simple 30-second bite uh, from a YouTube video I watched earlier this week featuring Nick Wright and the First Things First crew. Kevin Wilds gave his prediction of who would win the finals. Nick Wright gave his. Chris Broussard gave his. But after Kevin Wilds was done speaking, if I'm not mistaken, Kevin Wilds, a New England native, he's a Patriots, Celtics, you know, that kind of fan. 
Nick Wright yeah. had some choice words to say about Boston Celtic fans that I think Celtics fans, including the one on this podcast, Tom Shively, needs to hear. Celtics fans are always like, oh, Lakers fans, you claim five titles from Minneapolis. You claim nine titles when the league had nine teams or less. Zip it with your 17 rings when over half of them came pre-Nixon administration. And I understand Celtic fans, most of them, <laughs> yearn for the Nixon administration, but that was a long time ago. So I'm done. I, I, I'm anti-Wilds. I'm anti-Celtic wow. fans in general. And I think the Warriors are going to win the title, bro. So that was it. I, I, uh, I loved his quote of... I that Celtics fans yearn for the Nixon administration. That was a classic. Uh, Brian, I know you didn't hear it. I am not able to play it again because I don't. I don't know if it's going to play for you or not. And I know it played for everybody okay. else. It, it's very unfortunate here today. The some of the technical difficulties we fought through. I think the audio listeners will have no idea they happened. If you're watching on video, you're definitely going to know that it happened. Good to know. Apologies to all the video watchers. We we've been battling through it here. It's been a it's been an uphill climb, but we're making it through it. I'm sorry I missed the sound. You're gonna have to send it to me. Uh, but I mean, choosing the word yearn along with the Nixon Nixon administration that's just peak Nick right. Like that that is if you would tell me any sports broadcaster and those like trio of words clumped together, I would say yeah, that sounds like a Nick right take. That that all adds up. Yeah, because, point. because I enjoyed the sound so much and it's making fun of Celtics fans, I'm going to try and play it for you one more time and see if you can hear it. Uh, let's, let's try one more time. Celtics fans are always like, oh, Lakers fans, you claim five titles from Minneapolis. You claim nine titles when the league had nine teams or less. Zip it with your 17 rings when over half of them came pre-Nixon administration. And I understand Celtic fans, most of them, <laughs> yearn for the Nixon administration, but that was a long time ago. So I'm done. I, I, I'm anti-Wilds. I'm anti-Celtic wow. fans in general, and I think the Warriors are going to win the title, bro. I know you couldn't hear it that time either. I could see it by the look on your face, but the people got to hear it again, and that's all that really matters. I will send it to you. If, if generally, based on the sentiment surrounding the take as, as a relatively anti-Boston fan myself i probably agree with whatever he's saying i'll give you the, the the other gist of it is essentially that the celtics fans they they make fun of lakers fans and say they're the worst fans because they claim five minneapolis titles when celtics fans claim nine championships from when the team when the league had nine teams in the league or less so his, his statement was essentially that they need to be quiet about how winning they are 17 championships that they're not very very well earned 17 that half of over half of them are pretty bad championships hence yearning for the nixon administration it all adds up <laughs> it all adds up in the end and that that i guess brings us to the end of another uh technically difficult portion of there's a lot going on last week was difficult with tom this week was difficult for other reasons it, it wasn't even necessarily the internet although for some reason at some point the internet just just gave up on us don't know why that happened but brian that brings us to the end of another edition of there's a lot going on uh, episode 99 for those who are keeping track at home what? next week the special episode 100 i was bouncing some ideas off of tom this week and we've got something cooked up for next Whoa. week including maybe a new logo maybe some new youtube assets i don't know the people gotta stay tuned to find out that's everything next week though on episode 100 brian before we cut you loose uh, do you have any final thoughts, things you'd like the audience to know? Where can they find you? Let, let's get it all out at one time. Um, can find me on social media. Uh, both Twitter and Instagram is at BP3McLaughlin. Um, if you follow me there, I'll probably tweet about a lot of things in Vermont happenings that are going on in and around Burlington. Actually, Dave, this is something I wanted to tell you. Recently found, we, we've talked about the, the Vermont kind of scene here, what we like to do around Vermont, in and around Church Street. I found a Church Street shop that has some great clothes, and it is called the Banana Stand. <laughs> is there always money in the Banana Stand? 
always money in the banana stand. And it's actually a pretty nice little shop too. Got some nice t-shirts, nice little fashion wear. I'm looking forward to going back. And I walked by it the other day and thought, it's a store called the banana stand. I got I, my initial reaction. I got to tell Dave and I got to tell Judson. So I, I'm knocking one of those out right now. So I, I got to ask then the money in the banana stand. It's your money. They have your money in the banana stand. Well, I didn't spend any money there yet. I went mm. in and just did kind of like a little walk around, made sure to keep all of my money with me. None of my money in the banana stand yet, but there, there definitely was other people's money in the banana stand to say the least. A uh, little bit of a insider baseball for people who don't know this. A friend told me this when I was in high school or maybe we were in college. Did you know that when you go to the mall, right? So you walk into a store, they track every single person that walks into the store. And at the end of the day, they use that to determine about how much money they should have made. And so that's like the people who are there are supposed to like average a certain amount of money per customer a day. And it's seen as like a negative on them if they don't. So if you walk into a store at the mall, try and buy something because otherwise it looks bad for your friends who are working at the mall. Who knew that a mall had sabermetrics? That's that's some deep <laughs> stuff right there. The the mall has had advanced analytics longer than hockey. How about that? The original Moneyball. <laughs> the, 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 I have so many mall jokes I'm just not going to make because they're all <laughs> terrible and they're all very specific to my local mall. <laughs> well, Brian, I don't know how recently you've heard this rant, but for the people who know this rant, if you've made it to the end of this episode, you know what I want you to do. Go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, tell us what you like, what you don't like. If there's anything you'd like us to talk about it, leave it in the comments there. You can also go on to Spotify, give us a five-star rating. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you like, subscribe, leave a comment, you know, thoughts on NBA Finals, the World Cup, Ukraine. If you're also somehow anti-Ukraine, I'm just going to assume you're a Russian bot, so feel free to leave that in the comments of this video really boost it for youtube by uh, having all the rushing bots here in the comments and be sure to go into show notes follow the show on twitter follow me on twitter follow tom brian follow us on instagram the instagram is probably my favorite thing we have going right now uh the tiktok was hot for a second but now it's all about the instagram i don't know i don't know how this thing works but for brian it's all about McLaughlin, the reels dave keep the reels going exactly that's what i'm saying all about the reels been a big fan of the reels so far so you know, go follow us over there. And again, do all those other things I asked you to do. But for Brian McLaughlin, I'm David Royal. We'll catch you back here with Tom next week for the 100th edition of There's a Lot Going On.